Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In our ninth lesson in the life of the Apostle Paul, Dale South introduces us to the person of Timothy, and we learn how God specifically called Paul to preach the gospel in the region of Macedonia. So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 as we continue learning how to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the second missionary journey of Paul. He's going to Macedonia and, and Philippi. And this is a, where the phrase that you might have heard, somebody, I had a Macedonian call. Well, th- this is where that would come from here, where Paul had a calling to go to Macedonia that we'll read about in, in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Both, both of these words were written from Paul and, and they encapsulate a lot of what his mission was, what he saw his mission to be. And then finally we see that our big idea for this series is that Paul in that modeled this life that was surrendered to Jesus as an example of them for us to, to follow. Now, last week, Wes uh, pointed out that the Apostle Paul had this, what he called a holy unsettledness. This holy unsettledness compelled the apostle uh, to, to take the gospel to lost people who had not yet heard it, or at least who had not yet embraced it. Maybe they'd heard something about this God who died and rose from the dead, but they, they had not really understood it and had not embraced it as, as something that would change and transform their lives. And this morning, we're going to see some very compelling, what I find very compelling evidence that it, it really was God himself who put that holy unsettledness in Paul because God has a plan to, to exalt himself uh, to all mankind through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for, for me personally, you know, I think I'm probably like, I don't think I'm that unusual that, that I go through some ups and downs in my faith. I go through some times when I'm probably more zealous for evangelism than other times. And one of the barometers to measure how my heart is aligned with God's heart is just to check how compelled am I right now? What kind of a holy unrest do I have to see my neighbors, to to see friends and loved ones, to see people who don't yet know the gospel, to, to see them engaged with the gospel in a manner that they can can understand it and either reject it or accept it, but at least kind of know what it is and to hopefully see them come to a new and abundant abundant life. But the truth is that sometimes I get so wrapped up in busyness and in my own pleasure and leisure activities and family activities of just my own life that I realize I'm not intentionally praying much for lost people that I know I'm not intentionally praying for the nations of the world to experience spiritual awakening and, and revival. And in, in, in those moments, I'm, I'm not actually praying and following the Holy Spirit's leading to share the gospel with other people. It's not on the forefront of my mind all the time. And, and when I realize that it's not on the forefront of my mind, I can't honestly say that my own relationship with God is is healthy and aligned with his heart 
if I really do believe that he has this holy unrest, that he is the great missionary. As we looked last week at the lost sheep, we looked at the lost coin. This week we'll be looking at the lost son or sons, as I, I believe is probably a better uh, description of Luke 15. Uh, one of, of my small group members brought the poem by Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. He said that was the only thing missing Sunday morning was this idea that God is this hound of heaven that, that pursues us like a bloodhound and just will not relent until he has come to to engage us there with, with the truth of his presence and his gospel. So God is the ultimate church planter. And I just want to share with you a couple of quotes that have been very, very meaningful to me that, that have kind of helped me just see things through a prism, maybe with a little bit of a different angle than I would have been looking at them before. Because I tend to see things through a lens of that's how it's going to affect me you know, and what I need to do. And, and I think that's kind of part of our fallen human nature is when we start to almost interpret everything through the lens of self rather than through the lens of, of God uh, before self. And so I, I would tend to think, and I think that the church naturally has had this idea, you know, well, God has his church. The church is God's church. And then God's church has a mission, Maybe you thought that God has his church and his church has a mission. This is a quote from Christopher Wright, who wrote a book called The Mission of God. And I think it just takes just a little twist to help at least me uh, keep things in a better perspective. He said, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. See, God's been on a mission of redemption since Genesis chapter 3, when, when he says, you know, by the seed of this woman, one will come and his, he, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. God has been on a mission of redemption from the very beginning. And so it's that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. In God's mission, it was. So as we look at the New Testament, I think we start to see that in the book of Acts, that the church was the instrument of God's mission to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world so that all nations, tribes, and tongues would come to understand that he is the one true God. He is the one Savior who is worthy of worship, that he would be exalted, just like back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, with the great uh, cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it rule over because they, as his image bearers, were going to be reflecting his glory back in every nook and cranny of the globe. So keep that in mind, if you would. God's not got a church that has a mission, but God has a mission, and the church is part of that mission. That's why we exist. Um, uh, I also tend to think at times, you know, that, well, I have a responsibility to carry the gospel to these people. And I think that's true. I, I think we do have a responsibility to share the gospel, uh, to make disciples of all nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. But in Romans chapter 116, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we see this was, this was Paul's pattern. He would go to the Jew first, and then he would go to the Greek. But he always tried to go to the synagogue or to the Jewish uh, 
folks before he went on to the, the Gentiles. And so one, one of um, the things that I would think of is, well, I've got to take the gospel to the people. But as I see in the book of Acts and throughout Scripture, it seems like disciples of Jesus do not so much carry the gospel to the lost. Rather, the gospel carries disciples of Jesus to the lost. You see, this, this is that holy uh, unrest here, that holy unsettledness where Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It's that I will go to a place that I wouldn't ordinarily go or choose to go to, not because I want to go there, but because the gospel carries me there to tell other people this wonderful news. Because when I realize this beauty of the gospel that has sought me out and has been relentless in pursuing me, and by God's mercy and God's grace, he opened my eyes to see the truth of his word. When I realize that gospel has transformed me and is still transforming me and is changing me from the inside out, renewing my mind, giving me a new heart, giving me a new purpose and a new mission in life. When I realize that, then I, I just can't keep that good news to myself. Another little quote that I, that I love is from Michael Green in a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. And he says the gospel spread as Christians went in persecution. They went around and they gossiped the gospel wherever they went. I, I love that. That it's just Christians gossiping. This news is too juicy. I cannot keep this to myself. Have you heard about this one? This is just so good. Well, one of Satan's biggest deceptions, I think, of the church today and, and, and probably throughout church history has, has been to convince so-called ordinary Christians that, that sharing the gospel is really a task for pastors. It's a task for evangelists. It's a task for missionaries. It's a task maybe for the super spiritual ordinary Christian. Uh, but, but I think that is a lie from the, the pit of hell. Uh, and every one of us who has been engaged by the gospel and saved by it are empowered by the Spirit and carried by the Spirit to, to gossip that gospel wherever we go. Now, um, we'll recall from Acts 15 last week that Paul and Barnabas had this really sharp dispute between them, right, over John Mark. Uh, John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas, and Barnabas wanted to take him on this second missionary journey. And Paul said, no, remember when we went to Cyprus and we got up there, he, he turned around and went home. We're not going to take him again because he, he didn't stay the course. So uh, Barnabas decides, well, I'm going to take John Mark with me. And Paul picks then Silas to go with him on, on the trip. So uh, Barnabas and the rejected Mark go to Cyprus and Paul and Silas head back to the churches where they had been. So the, the big idea this morning we're going to see, I think, reinforce, is that God's church planting strategy redirects his people and uses them in ways that they could never imagine. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, we're going to read, start off with verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, 
and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities, and they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers. As they went on their way through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not let them go. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we see Paul had visited these churches again, kind of in reverse order, going this time from east to west that he had been to before. And we'll, we'll remember that um, when they go back to, to Lystra, do you remember what happened in Lystra back in Acts chapter 14? That's when Paul and Barnabas went there and they healed the man and then they started to preach and then the people started to worship them thinking that they were Zeus and, and Hermes. And, and before you know it, uh, a whole group of angry Jewish people came over and uh, incited a riot and they, they stoned Paul and left him for dead, thinking that he was dead. Well, now, now he's gone back to that very place. And, and that's the city, though, that on that first missionary journey, in spite of all that suffering, in spite of what happened to Paul at that time, it seems like a young man named Timothy came to faith. And, and Timothy was from Lystra. The gospel had not really gotten to Lystra, as far as we know, before that first missionary journey. And so uh, Timothy now is, is from Lystra. And we see that Paul has Timothy circumcised. Timothy had a Jewish mom and a Gentile dad. And uh, he would have been considered a Jew by virtue of his Jewish mother. And missiologically, Timothy was an ideal candidate because he was bicultural. He knew the Greek culture, the Gentile culture, and he also knew the Jewish culture. And he was a young guy that Paul could mold and, and disciple, mentor. So why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? And yet we know from a couple of weeks ago that he did not have Titus circumcised. And we know that when we went back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to that council that I spoke about the last time, that, that they, were, they were making these decisions about what is the essence of the gospel and how do we keep unity in this very diverse group of people with different values. And so at that time they said, well, we're going to say that no Gentile needs to be circumcised. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to obey the Jewish law. Remember, they just can't eat meat with blood in it. They can't eat meat strangled. That's been strangled. They can't have sexual immorality, and they can't worship idols. That was basically the, the guidelines that were left out. And, and so Timothy now is circumcised, but Titus wasn't. Now, why would, would that be? I, I think that the answer there is that Paul had already established that the gospel did not require circumcision. And as we read in the text here, when they went around to all these churches, they took the letter from Jerusalem. It's called the decisions in the ESV that we looked at, the decisions from the people in Jerusalem. It's just telling them, you Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. 
But Timothy was circumcised because his mother was a Jew. And Paul never, ever told Jews, you know, you guys shouldn't be circumcised. He never denounced circumcision to Jewish believers because he said, you can still be Jewish and, and follow your Messiah, Jesus. He said, we're just not going to impose that on the Gentiles. Titus was fully Gentile. Timothy was half Jew, and the Jewish people that they were going to would have recognized him as being Jewish because of his mother's bloodline. They would have known of his father being a Gentile, and this would have been a stumbling block to the gospel. So the, the issue of Timothy's circumcision had nothing to do with it being required by the gospel, but in this case, it was required for keeping obstacles out of the gospel's way as, as it went. So we, we can find some applications for that in our own lives, I think. Of, you know, This is not a matter of the gospel, but it is a matter of seeing the gospel go forward without putting up unnecessary barriers and obstacles to it. Now, as we continue on in, in verses um, 9 through 12, as we, we were looking there, we see that uh, this vision appeared to Paul in the night, this man from Macedonia urging him, come on over. And Paul and his team had wanted to go to Asia. They, they had wanted, to, and they said the Holy Spirit stopped them. They had wanted to go to Bithynia, and they weren't able to go. That was not God's plan. And then God intervened with this supernatural vision to Paul with this man from Macedonia saying, come and, and help us. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you felt like you were called or wanting to go to some place on a, on a mission or a trip or uh, just, just to share with someone, but you just roadblocks all over the place. Just, just could not go. The Holy Spirit of God, something was keeping you from going. And then there was this redirection of, of your path. I, if you have, I think that's fairly normal is God takes people who are moving and changes their direction at times. Back in 1990, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Paraguay as a part of a two-week mission trip um, with a group, and we had never thought about going to Paraguay as missionaries. We thought about going to China as missionaries, China or Japan, and we, we got down there and we just realized, boy, this feels like home. This feels like where we're supposed to be, and so we prayed about it and we, we applied to the mission board. And by the, by the time we applied and we got approved, there were no openings at all in Paraguay. The, the openings that had been there when we were first down there had uh, been filled. They didn't need anybody there. So we started to say, okay, it must not be Paraguay. We're going to go look at the, all the charts and see what's available for positions. And, and so then we prayed about one, and it was in uh, the island of Margarita in Venezuela. And we said, okay, I think that's the one. I think that's it. But... Over the course of time, as we were going through, my, my wife had been battling a, a, a pretty much lifelong depression since she was six years old and her mother died. And her, her home life was pretty chaotic with a father who had a gambling addiction. And so uh, she, she had been fighting this depression for a long time. And, and when her daughter became six, uh, which is the age that her mother died, her depression went pretty deep. Because she was, you know, I didn't even have a mother past six. How do I, how do, I do this? Um, it was uh, a pretty dark time for us. And then as a result of uh, some of the things that were going on, we found out that our daughter was having some signs of depression. So as we were in this process of going overseas, God in his mercy and kindness prevented us from going to the mission field where we would have probably wiped out had we gone 
in the conditions that we were originally in. And during that time, there had been this position in Margarita, Venezuela, open for seven years, and this couple had been praying that somebody would come take this position and work alongside of them. And we met them, and we thought it was them. And during that time, we, we had a delay in our process because of uh, going through counseling and some things. And so during that two-year delay, someone took that position in Venezuela. And so we couldn't go to Venezuela. It's back now to the drawing board. What do we do? We looked at all the job descriptions again. There was one right now in Paraguay in the very place that we had originally hoped that we would be able to go. And, and God's timing and his mercy, he had redirected. He had stopped us from going then. He had changed our direction here. And he took us back to Paraguay where we, we had a wonderful uh, nine years of uh, ministry among the Paraguayan people, sharing the gospel and planting churches. So I've, I've had an experience like that. And, and for me, although it was heartbreaking and very frustrating at times, uh, to, to see how the Lord used that and it was the Lord who was the one who was the great missionary. He, he was the church planter. He was calling the shots. It, it wasn't me and it wasn't the International Mission Board. It was, it, it was God pulling the strings and, and working things around so that, that his gospel would carry us to this people as part of his church, which is part of his mission. So um, I want to show you the map here. It's a new map. Hunter would be probably pretty pleased to see this. But we, we're getting now further into Asia. Um, I'm going to have to probably put on my glasses if I look down here. Maybe I can just look up here. Today. Um, we, we have Troas that's up here where Paul was, right, right around there. And we have up here in Neapolis, which is the port that they end up going to. And Philippi was about 10 miles in be, be below that. Paul had wanted to go down, though, to Asia, down in this region, to Bithynia and uh, the Holy Spirit had kept him from being able to, to go there. Now, is, um, we see Philippi is, is where they ended up. And Philippi was settled from ancient times largely because of copper and gold uh, deposits there in, in the region. It was the leading city of the region of Macedonia. Had this port city of Neapolis just about 10 miles away. And it was on this road called the Ignatian Way that you see right up in here. This road would go east to west and actually come all the way over here, and it would be the, the pathway to Rome. And so it was a, a major thoroughfare there for trade and for uh, people moving about the region. And as we, we find out more about this particular city of Philippi, we find out that it was populated by probably 60 to 70 percent of retired military guys from the Roman army. And, and so it was a fortress kind of a place there because they had all these people to help protect it. And it had a special status as a Roman place there that was different than all the other areas. So that's going to come into play a little later on in the chapter when Max uh, gets up next week. But it was a very like a mini Rome. It was very, very diverse, had a lot of idolatry in it. It was just like a microcosm, though, of, of, of Rome. Um, and as we, we look at verses 13 to 15, we see that, that Philippi was definitely uh, a mission field. We'll actually go to verse 11. So, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day on to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, 
which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the, woman who had come, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, it's interesting. This city had been around for 400 years and it's a thriving, bustling city, but apparently from all we can see, there was no synagogue in the city. Now, why would there be no synagogue in the city? It, it could have been perhaps prohibited, but oftentimes you had to have at least 10 Jewish men to even form a synagogue. So it doesn't appear, though, that there were any synagogues in the city of, Jeru of Philippi. So what would happen then is there would often be a place of prayer down by a river. And Paul had heard that there was just going to be a place of prayer. So they went down to the place of prayer where the God-fearers and the Jewish people who didn't have a synagogue would go to pray. He said, I can't go to the synagogue first. I'll go to the place of prayer first. And it was at that place of prayer that he met uh, this businesswoman named Lydia. And Lydia was from Asia here, which is Thyatira. This is the place that she was from right here in this city. And that was an area that was known for producing and selling this, this luxurious purple fabric that would be used among royalty. I mean, even, perhaps even the robe that Jesus wore was this purple robe there on the, the time when he was crucified. I'm not not absolutely sure about that. But it was a very expensive, finely dyed cloth from her hometown, and it was used to make the official togas of Roman government. And it, 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 she must have been pretty well off because she'd, she'd set up shop in Philippi, and she had enough room to host Paul and his missionary team and his companions. And so we, we know that she was of Asian ethnicity. We know that she was wealthy. We know that, that she was a God-fearer, meaning that, that she believed in the God of the Jews, but had not converted to Judaism. And, and we see that God opened her heart to believe. That's one of the big things we have, we see next, that God opens our hearts to be able to believe. Even though she was not a Jew by birth, uh, she was spiritually open and hungry. And she responded to the preached word of the Lord with all her heart to pay close attention to what God was saying. And then she believed, her household believed, they were baptized. And so we see here the forming of a church starting before there was ever a synagogue even in, in Philippi. And Lydia says, if you really believe that I'm saved, if you, if you really believe that, that I'm faithful, then come to my house, accept my hospitality, stay in my home. And Paul did, even though she was a Gentile, they went into her home. And Max is going to hit the rest of the verse in this chapter next week, but there's just a couple of things I want to point, point out here. And that, that is that, that God demonstrates his heart for very diverse, different kinds of people to populate his church, to constitute his church. In Acts 16, 16 to 34, Luke tells us about two other people that Paul and Silas encountered with the gospel. And we're not told the names of either one of them. We just know that one of them was a young woman, uh, briefly, that she was uh, enslaved she was a slave to her masters, and she was doubly enslaved because she was also possessed by a demon. 
So this young woman, probably of Greek origin, not sure, uh, but, but she would tell fortunes and her owners would make profits off of her being able to tell fortunes to people. And so Paul encounters this young woman and expels the demon from her. And the, with the, the truth of the gospel has power over that. And that ends up getting Paul arrested and put in jail. And so Paul, while he's in jail, then we find this other character who is uh, the second one. And this is a, a man from Philippi. It's the Philippian jailer. Again, we don't get his name either. We don't know what, what, he's, what he was called. Instead of being like this woman, Lydia, who was hungry for the gospel, or, or like this young woman, the slave who was in, possessed by a demon and had no interest in the gospel at all, this man was just pretty indifferent. This guy was probably more like me, more like, more like you. He was a blue-collar uh, civil servant guy, just doing his job and, 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 and working hard. And he, he, he didn't have an interest at that point in the gospel until he saw the faithful witness of Paul and Silas in the midst of a tragedy and God's supernatural intervention. So as we see here, we've, we've got a, a very wealthy woman. We've got a very, very poor woman who didn't even own her own body or her own spirit because she was possessed by a demon. And then we've got this working class blue collar guy who responded to the witness of Paul and Silas um, in, in their lives. So there's this no way, guys, that Paul and Silas would have sat down in Antioch before they went on this trip and said, you know, we've got this really cool missionary strategy, okay? Uh, we're going to plant a church in Philippi. And we're going to go to this area of Macedonia. What we're going to, the first thing we want to do is we want to find us a wealthy Jewish woman to help support us and to be kind to us and to, to receive the gospel. And after we get this Jewish woman, then we're going to get this slave girl who's possessed. And we're going to show the power of God to her owners and to everybody all around that the power of the gospel is more powerful than the power of Satan and, and that he can set us free and deliver us. And, and then when they throw us in jail, then we're going to preach the gospel to the jailer as this middle class guy. And, and, and we're going to pull all this together. And, and that's going to be our church start. OK, there's, there's just no way in the world that that would have ever crossed their minds. And yet God, the missionary, God, the church planter is moving the pieces around and setting them. said, this is this, this is the way I'm going to plant the church in Philippi. And there's never going to be any doubt as to who actually planted this church because it's going to be my church, the Lord says. So when, when we examine uh, the scriptures here, if I can get this to go again. Oh, I didn't realize I had all that fancy stuff there. Um, here, we, we look at the diversity of people that Paul ministers to in Acts chapter 16. We've, we've got Lydia. Her ethnicity was Asian. She was spiritually a seeker. Um, in, in terms of her economic status, she was wealthy. And how did she respond to the gospel? She responded to the gospel through listening to the preached word as the Spirit opened her heart to see and to understand. Then we have the slave girl, unnamed, probably of Greek ethnicity. Her, spiritually, she was in bondage to a demon, not seeking. Uh, she, she economically was enslaved, had nothing. And she responded to a power encounter as the gospel of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit delivered her from the possession of this demon. Then the third person we have is the jailer. He was ethnicity of Roman. 
He, he spiritually was pretty indifferent. Didn't know about the gospel, didn't care about the gospel. This is one of these guys to stay in jail where they could be tried the next day and, and he could just go on about his business. Blue collar guy. And he responded to Paul and Silas's lives as, as, as they cared more about him than they did their own freedom. And he, they shared the gospel. He and his household also came then to, to faith. So when, when we, we see this, we, we see that this activity was of God's spirit and it reflects the very heart of, of God. And we see that heart in Jesus when he selected the disciples, very different men. He picked Simon the Zealot politically and he picked Matthew the tax collector who would have been considered the most unpatriotic guy on the face of the planet. We, we, we see in the book of Revelation that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to be gathered together around the, the throne of God in worship. We see in this church of Antioch, there were people from Cyrene and, and Africa and all around with these multi-ethnic people coming together around the gospel. And now we see in Philippi, God pulling together a very disparate group of people, a wealthy Asian woman. Perhaps we don't know for sure that this Greek girl uh, came to faith. It doesn't say that she was baptized. And then we see the Roman jailer of a, a middle-class guy coming together and the Lord pulling them all together around an encounter with, with the gospel. So uh, when, when we look at the New Testament, we, we see this beautiful heart of God for all the nations. We see the gospel carrying people out. And so as we reflect this again on the big idea this morning, God's church planning strategy redirects his people and uses them in ways they could never imagine. I just want to say, how might God be redirecting and directing our lives to use us in ways we can never imagine? If our heart is aligning with his to see people of every ethnicity, of every economic status, of every skin color, of every language and dialect, to see those people come to understand the gospel that could set them free as the gospel has set us free. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. Hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.